everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for this outstanding interview with Andrew Grant, a.k.a. Andrew Child. We know you'll enjoy the fun as we discover the inside story of the much-loved books and TV series Jack Reacher, as well as his other novels, which include Detective Cooper Devereaux and Peter McGrath, among others. Get ready for another episode full of learning, laughter, and new ideas for readers and writers. Our guest today specializes in suspense fiction, which will be a great treat for all of us. So get ready for an exciting suspense-filled event of reading and writing adventure with your fellow bibliophiles at Writing Works Wonders. I'm Dr. Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to my fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. <laughs> I always start laughing before you even announce it. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's so good to be here. Thank you, Kathy. Hi, everybody. Hello. And I do have the master of the universe here with me. So without further ado, I will turn it back over to you, Kathy. Yeehaw, it's my great pleasure <laughs> to introduce, zooming in with us today from Wyoming, Andrew Child. Let us briefly introduce him to you. Have you heard me flipping the name back and forth? That's right. Andrew Grant, otherwise known also as Andrew Child, is the author of the Jack Reacher series, Run, False Positive, and False Friend. In addition to the Jack Reacher series, you might be familiar with his work, where he has series including Peter McGrath and also another series of Detector Cooper Devereaux. Andrew was born in Birmingham, England, and attended the University of Sheffield, where he studied English literature and drama. He ran a small independent theater company and later worked in telecommunications industry for 15 years. Andrew and his wife, the novelist Tasha Alexander, live on a wildlife preserve in Wyoming. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Cheryl, take it away. Thanks, Kathy. Hi, Andrew. So glad to have you here with us. Well, hi, Cheryl, and hi, Kathy, and thank you so much for having me as a guest. You know, that introduction where you said that it was a pleasure to be with fellow bibliophiles, you could not be more correct. It's just wonderful to be here with people who share the same love and passion for books. So thank you very much for having me as a guest. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so interested in where you live on the wildlife preserve. I have friends who had their property designated as a wildlife preserve. Was it already a wildlife preserve or did you have your property designated as such? It is a fascinating place to live. People back home in England will say to me, you know, did you ever imagine yourself living somewhere like that? And I'd say, well, no, because I didn't know that there were places like this. It's something that I'd never encountered before. And what happened was, I think it was actually back in maybe the 1980s, a couple bought this kind of old derelict ranch about 4,200 acres altogether. And they they wanted to turn it into a nature preserve. So they spent quite a long time with the planning and the setting up. 
and they took out they out of the 4200 acres they took out 14 lots uh, where people could build houses they have covenants that prevent there from ever being any more than the 40 it's lovely because it means that whatever is left out of that 4200 is just shared land and there are five ponds there are some kind of rocky mountainous bits and it's full of animals you know it's one of those places my brother came to visit he actually bought one of the houses because he liked it so much you know we said to him oh yeah you'll come out you'll see you'll see all these animals and he was like yeah right of course you know he thought that he was going to turn up and we would say well you know normally there are animals but this weekend you know just because of whatever weird reason (laughs) you know but actually no there were moose moose showed up lots of elk lots of deer we get some horns plus lots of little animals rabbits chipmunks that kind of thing i mean in fact with no exaggeration we see more moose here than we see people if we want to see people we have to make an effort and go and find them (laughs) whereas the moose just come right up to the house so it's um it's an absolutely outstanding place to live i love it that kind of leads me into the question with tasha how do you and she balance i mean it sounds like you have a lot of property you have a lot of room and how do you balance out your writing careers and your writing time well that's a great question and actually the need to balance it was one of the things that led us out here because before we lived in wyoming we lived in chicago so we went literally from the from the middle of the city to the middle of nowhere. One thing I always love to say is that if you put our zip code into the U.S. Census Bureau website, it says uninhabited because <laughs> um, there are too few houses per square mile to count as being an inhabited area. You know, we lived in Chicago for 10 years and we loved it in Chicago. It's a wonderful city. But the problem was there were two of us trying to write, you know, which really in, obviously involves working from home. And in a city like Chicago, we had a tiny, weeny little little apartment. And it was very difficult for us to find the space that you need to concentrate on, on the work. And at the time, I was still going back to the UK more often because of family stuff. So we were able to kind of disperse the work a little bit more. But the work, it came to the point where I wasn't traveling back very much. And we were together all the time in this tiny apartment. The thing with writing, as you know, is it's it's a very strange occupation, you know. You have to get completely into this strange made-up world in your head. And the slightest thing, I find, can pull you out of it. You know, somebody walks by and says hello, or, you know, you hear the kettle boiling in the kitchen or something like that. That can be a morning's work gone, you know. We needed better space. So we started looking around for somewhere we, where we would have more room. We were kind of the opposite of the empty nesters because the kids were all off at college. At that point, we actually needed more room rather than less room. We thought we would try and buy a house in Chicago, and we looked around, but, you know, for phenomenally expensive and we were really struggling with what to do we wound up coming out on a road trip Tasha wanted to take me on a trip to see all the different places in the states that she'd lived in because she's moved around a lot after college she actually lived in Laramie for for a couple of years and when we got out here I was amazed because I'd never felt the feeling of space and sort of lack of pressure and just calmness that that you have out here and I said to her well we we need to move anyway so why don't we just move here and she was delighted because she'd never wanted to leave when she lived here before so we looked around and we found the place that, that we that we wound up buying and the thing about it is it's wonderful because we have very little control over what work we do and when we do it writing is one of those things where if you're lucky enough that somebody offers you 
some work, you, you do it because you can't say, no, I don't want to write that book because if you do, then the likelihood is the following year, no one's going to ask you. So we don't have too much control over what work we do and when we do it. So having enough room here, because, you know, you can swap a two-bedroom tiny inner-city apartment for, for what we have out here, which is just mind-boggling, really. At first, what we were looking for was simply a house that had enough rooms in it that we could have one each to work in, just so that we'd have some, some space where we could just focus on work. And this house has those. It ticked those boxes, and that's really as far as we thought. But the way it's set up is actually... It has an unexpected benefit for us in that the house is built into the side of a hill. You come in on the ground floor, and then if you go up the stairs, there are just two rooms. So Tasha took one of them as her office. But if you go downstairs, there's a sort of walkout basement due to the way that the hill is configured. So I took one of the rooms down in the basement. And what that means is that the, the ground floor, the central floor, that means you've got a kind of neutral floor that, that we go to for living, you know, for relaxing and if we want to watch TV or just hang out. And then we have our workspace on different floors. It's really lovely. It's, it's like you can really delineate when you're working and when you're at home, even though it's all in the same building. And because of the separation, we're not disturbing one another. I like to work at night. Tasha likes to work early in the morning. We really, we have just had it, and we had it once in Chicago where we were on the same deadline. And it gets really bad because, you know, I'll be wanting to make coffee in the middle of the night, and I'm worried that the machine is going to wake her up, you know, because it would in a tiny apartment. Whereas here, I could play in a brass band and it wouldn't wake her up. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it's tremendous. So it's a huge, huge benefit for us in terms of work. And the timing, of course, because we moved out in 2017, and of course, no one could have anticipated with the pandemic coming, it's just been wonderful because we were already here established, you know, everything set up mm. when quite a few people were suddenly thinking, oh my goodness, we better get out of the city and find somewhere else. So we felt very lucky, honestly. What is the difference if you both have the same deadlines or they're scattered? I think the main difference is certainly for me when I'm when I'm approaching the deadline I, I this kind of tunnel vision you know sets in on me and the only thing I can focus on is finishing the book almost living in that weird made up world and she gets very much the same way so first of all we kind of revert to our kind of natural working patterns so it's much easier if our deadlines are different because then while one person is in crazy obsessive working mode the other person can do all the household stuff when we're both doing the crazy work at the same time it means the, the dust builds up but I think the main bonus of having someone else in the house who does the same job particularly when that job is writing because writing is a ridiculous way to earn a living really isn't it because you're sitting around in your pajamas making stuff up and trying to make it sound like it's real and <laughs> A lot of the time, well, I've got these really good friends in England. One of them is a playwright and one is a civil servant. There would be times where he would get up early in the morning because he was having trouble with one of the plays that he was writing. He couldn't get something to work. So he'd come downstairs, fling himself on the couch, and she would come down later. She'd have to then, and he'd be lying on the couch. She'd then have to get the kids up and get them dressed and get them fed and get them to school and then go to her job and work at her job all day and then go and get the kids from school and then come come back and cook the dinner and she'd get back and he'd still be lying on the couch in exactly the same spot. And he'd be saying, Oh, 
<laughs> and she'd be saying, well, let me tell you about having a terrible day. Um, but the thing is, we understand what that's like. You know, you can lie mm-hmm. on the couch all day and not move and have a terrible day and it'd be stressful because you can't get the crazy things that you're imagining to line up properly or you've got a problem with your plot that you can't figure out. You know, so we we understand those things that appear ridiculous to, to other people. We We know what it means and we know what it's like. Little things like when you are starting to think of of an idea for a book and you want to talk about it because you're excited, but the details are so sketchy and you sound like a complete idiot because you're saying, oh, I've had this idea (laughs) and he's in this place and he's doing this thing with this other guy. You sound ridiculous, but the other person understands it, you know, and they understand that it's part of the process that you have to kind of you get to a point where you have to say it out loud to see whether whether the idea holds up because I don't know about you but I always find that when you have that idea initially it's so kind of delicate and fragile at first Mm -hmm. you really don't want to mention it because if it sees the light of day it just won't hold up and it'll 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 you know turn to dust and you'll have to start all over Mm -hmm. again it's good to have somebody who understands what's going on and when you're at the right stage that you can share those ideas with see if they hold water or not and then if if you're confident that they do then you can you can press ahead and try and make progress then of course at the end when the manuscripts are finished when you've lived with one for for so many months you lose all objectivity you can't tell is it good is it bad people going to love it is it going to be the last thing anyone ever wants me to write you just don't know So having somebody that you can trust to read it and say to you, no, it's fine, you're okay, that is worth so much. It's really priceless. Was there anything specific that drew you to the suspense? Nothing that I could properly identify. It was just something that I noticed. As Kathy mentioned earlier, I started out in theatre. Theatre was my favourite thing. Mm -hmm. But once I had to kind of get a real job to pay the bills, it was hard to go to shows anymore because... I would always be on the road. So it was very, very difficult to get to the theatre as much as I wanted. So I just started reading more just because of, mm. of circumstances. I, I love going to bookstores and just browsing around and just seeing what grabs my fancy. I think the first time I really noticed this was I used to, when I had a job in telecommunications, I'd typically go on vacation to Greece uh, once a year, go to one of the islands and just lie on the beach for two weeks reading. So my suitcase was kind of ridiculous. It would have, you know, a couple of pairs of swimming trunks, lots and lots of sun cream. And apart from that, all it was was books. And that each day I'd decide which ones to take to the beach. And I remember looking at them one day, they were laying on one of the beds in this little apartment. I noticed just that they were all either crime fiction or a lot of spy fiction at that time. Mm. I was obsessed with that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it was just, I remember thinking, oh, okay, I, I guess I like that then. And um, more and more of it I read. That's kind of what led me to to wanting to do it for a living. Particularly, there was this one moment I'll always remember. I was reading reading this one book, and it was one of those where, you know, you start a book, and it just draws you in completely. You become obsessed with it. You have to find out what happens. You don't get off the bus. You miss your stop on the train. You you don't care. You just have to get to the end of the book. And the end of the book was terrible. You know, the beginning and the middle were absolutely brilliant, but the end was awful. And I remember thinking, well, why did he do that? Why, you know, he set up all of this, all of these potential things. Why didn't he follow up on this one? Why didn't he do this with the hero? Why didn't he do that with the villain? What about this scenario that he developed and then never did any, you know, and 
that was like an itch that got hold of me. And it was really from there on that I thought, I've got to give this a try and see if I can do it. Well, you've been doing very well at it. Very successful. And Kathy? Hi there, Andrew. It's really great to hear you talk about the relationship with your wife and how mutual understanding of a writer's life and interest and the rhythms we go through. You've really described that well. Another aspect which you've experienced is collaboration. Collaboration is always an adventure, good, bad, or ugly in writing, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, would you share some insight about the Jack Reacher book series and how that transitioned from your brother to you? What happened? Those are great questions. And it, you know, it was really territory that a few years ago, I would have had no inkling that I'd ever be sitting here answering questions or talking about it because it was not something I ever thought was going to happen. My brother obviously became an author before me and was doing, you know, immeasurably better than I was. But, you know, I remember the very beginning of his writing career. It was funny because really the boot was absolutely on the other foot in those days because I had a good job in telecommunications. He was out of work, you know, he'd worked for a TV company in England, had got fired. So he was out of work with no money. Well, he had about as much money, he had about enough to last him for a year or so. So he decided that what he was going to do to put food on the table was write a book. And I remember he wrote it, Killing Floor, the first Reacher book, and sent me the manuscript to see what I thought of it. And I was, I have never been more terrified to read a book in my life. I thought, if this book is no good... But that means two things. It means, first of all, I'm the one who's going to have to say to my brother, sorry, your book is awful. <laughs> and secondly, I know what's writing on this book. You know, it's not just a hobby. It's not a vanity project. This is what he needs to live. So I'm thinking, if it's a failure, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to send him food parcels? You know, am I going to have to let him sleep <laughs> in my spare room? What's going to be? And of course, the book was magnificent and I didn't have to worry about it. And it was funny because in those early days, you know what it's like when you're new and no one knows, no one's heard of you or your books or your series, if you're a right series. I'd be saying to all the people I knew, all my friends, all my colleagues, hey, you know, my brother's written a book. It's really good. You should buy it. And they're like, what? Lee Child? Who? Uh, uh, you know, and killing what? Oh, you know, and I couldn't get anybody to buy it. They were so unenthusiastic. And then about, you know, 10 years later, because, you know, there's that expression in publishing that it takes 10 years to become an overnight success and um, <laughs> you know 10 years or so later everybody that I work with is coming to me saying hey could you give me a signed copy for my my girlfriend's Christmas present or whatever <laughs> so it was a complete it was a complete reversal so I was the first person to read a Reacher book I loved the character and then for many years he wrote 24 Reachers on his own for all of those years anytime we got together and we would go to the football in England or we'd go to the baseball if we were in the States or we'd just hang out or we'd go on vacation or whatever and we would always be talking about Reacher. You know, he was like this invisible <laughs> extra brother that was along with us. We'd always be saying, you know, so, oh, look at that. What would Reacher think of that? What would Reacher do about this? You know? <laughs> we had great fun with Reacher, aside from the fact that he was the, the core of these incredibly successful books that my brother was writing. He was just something that was really fun between us. So I decided, you know, later on to become a writer, as we were just saying. 
And I tried everything to sort of distance myself from him. I didn't use, I was originally going to use a different pen name, but wound up not doing because he was using one anyway. So no one would know that there was a connection there. And then, you know, I had a different agent. I was at a different publisher. You know, I tried to keep as much distance between us as possible. And I tried to sound as different as well. So that the books had their own distinctive voice. Fast forward quite a few years. The last of my McGrath books was was coming out. And because we're in um, southern Wyoming, the nearest sort of big bookstore where they remember in the old days when you could do things in person instead of on Zoom, there, there was going to be a launch event for it in Denver, uh, Denver, Colorado, which is a couple of hours south of here. I said to him, do you want, he, was, he was in Wyoming, so I said, do you want to come to this book launch? And he said he did. So we went down. He, he said, tell you what, because he, he smokes a lot. So he said, let's, let's take my car so I can smoke. So we, we went in his car. We drove down. He drove. And we did the event. And I, I wasn't really thinking of anything other than the event, because when you've got one of those things coming up, you know, you're just thinking, am I going to make a fool of myself? Am I going to trip over my feet on the way to the stage? So luckily, the event was good. It went without any hitches. And then on the way back, Back, he said to me, Andrew, why don't you drive? So I said, okay. And I didn't realize at that time that this was part of an elaborate setup that he had going. <laughs> because this was January. We're driving up through northern Colorado into Wyoming. And it's, it's night, you know, it's approaching midnight. And the weather is utterly horrendous. We've got one of these, what they call ground blizzards going on, where the snow and ice just blows horizontally in front of you from the ground up. And you literally cannot see anything. And I remember saying, to him this is 50 50 we're either going to get home or we're going to end up in a ditch and I don't know which one it's going to be but he knew that the weather was going to be like that and he knew that I'd be concentrating mostly on that rather than having the capacity for a sort of knee-jerk reaction to anything so just casually he just throws into the conversation and says so Andrew I'm thinking of retiring you know, looking back, I feel a bit bad because if I was a nice brother, I would have said to him, you know, you deserve it. You should retire. You've worked so hard all these years, given so many people so much pleasure. Absolutely. You should take some time for yourself. Enjoy the fruits of your labors. But instead of that, I said, what? What about Richard? What are you talking about? Because <laughs> I just didn't want there to be a world without any more Jack Reachers. And he said, well, you know, I was thinking maybe, you know, you could you could start writing them. So that was how he introduced it. And he knew that I wouldn't be able to just sort of freak out or have some sort of instinctive reaction because of the focus on not killing us in the car. I thought it through. And, you know, part of it was I was just amazed that he would even think of it because he'd created this amazing global phenomenon. I didn't think he'd trust it to anybody, let alone me. Then I thought, well, could I do it? And that kind of seemed like a challenge. And my, one of my biggest weaknesses is that I can never resist a challenge. It's got me in so much trouble <laughs> over the years. So there was that challenge aspect to it. But more than anything, the thing that clinched it was I thought, well, if I don't, then that's it. That's, that's Reacher done. And I remember years ago, you know, I, I used to go to as many of his events as possible. Whenever a new Reacher came out, if I was in England, I'd try to go to ones in England. If I was here, I'd go to as many as possible. And I remember maybe three books into the series, I remember somebody in the audience asking, how many books are there going to be? First of all, and he, he always used to say 21, because of that sort of not John D. MacDonald. And then they would say, well, what happens at the end? And he would always like, say, well, you know, I've got this idea that Reach is going to bleed to death on the floor 
alone on the floor of a filthy motel bathroom somewhere in a lonely town in America. I remember looking at people at that third book. You could see them doing the math and thinking, okay, so 21 books altogether. This is book three, 18 more. Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. You know, no problem, no panic, no worry. But over the years, the closer we got to 21, and when we went past 21, when he would talk about Richard bleeding to death on a motel bathroom floor, just this sense of, you could feel the temperature in the room drop and this sense of panic and horror, you know, the idea of, of Richard dying and there being no more books. And I felt the same thing. And I thought, I don't want that to happen. I certainly don't want it to be my fault. I wound up saying, yeah. And so the idea evolved a little bit to us collaborating on, we, we said three or four, we don't have a specific, you know, we'll have to figure out exactly how we go, go forward. But the idea would be collaborate at first. And then at some point, um, you know, he would, he would withdraw altogether. He likes, you know, with Richard riding the Greyhound bus so much, he likes to, he has his bus metaphor that right now we're both on the bus, but pretty soon he's going to be getting off. <laughs> we will Excellent. Say. What a story. What a great story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Cheryl, I'm wondering if we need to move to questions. Yes, that would be great. First up, we have Ralph. Ralph, you may unmute. All right. Andrew, can you hear me? I can. Hi, Ralph. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I have uh, two questions. Are you working on the next Reacher book? And what, uh, you know, we know Reacher likes coffee. So did (laughs) that come because like Lee Child liked coffee or didn't like coffee? Or I just am interested in that. Well, those are great questions, Ralph. Thank you. Um, answer to the first one is, yeah, we are just putting the finishing touches to the next Reacher. It will be Reacher number 27, um, and it comes out this October. Um, it's a book where the, it's, the action is split kind of between Colorado and Mississippi, but I can't say too much more than that about it. But, yeah, it's, it's almost in the bag, so that one is, that, that is, that, that's been a lot of fun to work on. And the thing with the coffee, yeah, absolutely, it is because Lee likes coffee. The two of us drink a ludicrous amount of coffee. We both like it black, strong. For him, he said that it always provided a kind of rhythm to his work because he would drink a cup of coffee write some and then when he got stuck or needed time to think about the next bit he would go and get his next cup of coffee it fueled the process you know in in both in terms of the caffeine that you're that you're ingesting and the kind of the ritual of getting up and going to the machine and getting more next up is carol hi oh first of all don't you dare kill reacher off on a bathroom floor somewhere you i will you will have me to um account that too um, I've read all of Lee's books and love them. I'm just sitting, wait, drumming my fingers, waiting for the next one. What do you read? What do you read? I'm always interested in that. I'm being an avid reader myself. I like reading everything, even as a kid, whatever I could put my hands on. So typically, well, I'm, um, and I'm very interested in the, in the Second World War in particular. And so I'm often reading new stuff that I find about that. First up is Kenny. Uh, good morning. Uh, this is Kenny uh, calling in from Hawaii. Andrew, fantastic, fantastic. Thank you for your time this morning, sir. I probably have uh, listened to all of the Jack Reacher books, listened to books on audio. Don't remember the first one that I read, but I would have to say that immediately I was hooked. 
and I've listened to all of the Jack Reacher books that I can get my hands on twice. To me, the Reacher books are like an addiction. I have to have one. I can't go long without reading it, even if I've just read it not too long ago. It's just, I can't get enough of it, and definitely don't kill him all on the hotel floor. That would be very sad. He needs to go out in a blaze of glory, kicking butt. He needs to go out kicking butt, all right? Keep up the good work. And I have to say that uh, I can't recall the uh, gentleman that reads the uh, audio books, but he does a fantastic job with the Jack Reacher character and all the other supporting characters in the book. He is one great reader. He really brings the characters to life, the settings, and, and he just makes it so you can visualize every single thing as if you were there. It's a great series, and keep up the good work, and thank you again, sir. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, the guy who does the narration now, is he's called Scott Brick. I yeah. met him years and years and years ago at um, a mutual friend's birthday party. You know, we just met by chance. One of the bonuses of getting involved with the Reacher series is that it's very fun. The um, stuff that I write winds up getting rated by friends, but so it's, it's worked out beautifully. Next up is Calandra. But my question is, I mean, I've never actually read any of your books. This is a sensible one. How old were you when you started reading and writing? And when did you start your... Those are great questions. Thank you. I guess I probably learned, I learned to read quite early. I think I remember my father was working, he had an office job and he would come home in the evening, always try and get home in time to read me a, a bedtime story. And he would come in, I'd often be in bed when he'd get home and he would come into the room and he always had his newspaper sticking out of the sort of side pocket of his suit coat. And I remember once he came and he sat on my bed and the newspaper was there and he was reading some story, but I was looking at the newspaper and I really realized that I could read the words on the, that were sticking out on, on the newspaper. So that set me on my path of, of reading because obviously when you can read on your own, it's so much more fun. It was in my 30s, I guess, when I decided that I wanted, seriously wanted to become an author. And so for a while, I thought it would be sensible because obviously being an author is not particularly sensible. So I thought the best way to do it would be to try to write my first book while I still had a day job that was that was paying the bills. Then when I quit that day job, you know, I could move seamlessly into, into being an author. So I tried that, but it didn't work. I, I just couldn't find enough hours in the day to, to do both things. So in the end, I decided to just take the plunge and I, I quit my day job. And that was in 2006, I remember. I quit and then it took a year or so to get the first book in shape. Publishing moves very, very slowly. So I think I sold that book February 2008. It didn't come out until May 2009. You know, since then, it's not been quite one a year because I changed publishers at one point and so that caused a delay. But it's essentially been about one a year since then. Next up is Diana Noriega. One of the things that I've always found fascinating is the silly things that can stick in your head. Somehow you can't get them out until you include them in the story or something you're doing. I uh, have those 2 a.m. moments when a word I've heard or something that I've experienced or a thought just gets stuck. What inspires you? 
That is an excellent observation because I know exactly what you mean. We'll hear some or have some sort of idea that you just have to include. And I remember one, for example, years ago, Sasha and I were in Rome, in Italy. And I remember seeing this guy. He came out of a tiny little grocery store and he had a bag of shopping in one hand and he was carrying a baguette in his other hand. And evidently his phone was in the same hand as his baguette. And it must have rung at that particular moment. So he lifted it up to speak. And it looked for all the world like he was talking on his baguette. (laughs) And it was just the most ridiculous, the most ridiculous image. You know, this guy speaking to a loaf. And to this day, I'm still determined to get that into a book somehow. So, you know, yeah, they they absolutely catch you like that. But in terms of inspiration, I mean, it's come in, in numerous different ways. The Cooper Devereux character, for example, the key thing about him, you know, the complication with his family past. I actually dreamt that. I woke up in Chicago one morning thinking, this is fantastic. I've got the basis for the next book right here. This is great. So that was a dream. Other, some of the other ones, you just sort of have to empty your mind and just wait for the ideas to come in. And I think what probably happens is that stuff that you see or read or hear or think about or learn about in some way over the years kind of all gets stored up in the back of your mind. I think of it as a kind of big kind of tank that all of this stuff goes into and it ferments and it, you know, bubbles away and percolates. And then finally, it turns itself into something that you can that, that you can use. There are certainly been things like that that have happened for me. New stories that I heard years ago that, that I remember about or places that I've been that have a particular feel to them that, that you think would be the right atmosphere, things like that. Um, let's go ahead and go to Jane. It is good, good, good to be here. And I have a question for you. What has been the hardest human experience for you to try to write about? How do you struggle with that? And what's the hardest? I am presuming that that changes from book to book, but I'd like to know about that. Thank you, Jane. That's a really insightful question. It's kind of the equivalent of Room 101 in 1984 by George Orwell, where the idea of that is that rather than describe a particularly horrible thing that happens to somebody, he makes it that they have to face their personal greatest fear. And can reverse that because if you're thinking about things that are pleasurable, because what is attractive to one person may be blah to another. What sounds fun to one person might be repugnant to another. So I think finding a way of hinting at something sensual or something better than kind of describing this sort of... And the other part in terms of the most difficult experiences, I think, again, that varies from book to book because it, it has to fit with the story that telling it can't just be a kind of bolted on thing that because you want to explore something or that you feel something is important so really it it emerges from the story and I try to go for things that I something that most people will be able to relate to so typically things like being betrayed or being down or you know being abandoned you know things that people will or, you know, people or being frightened for a loved one's safety. You know, in, in the last reach, we had a brother and a sister and the sister was 
terrified for the safety of her brother. You know, I think most of us can appreciate what it would be like to be worried about somebody that you loved and whether they were safe, whether they were alive, how would you would how you would feel the fact they were in danger was actually your fault, you know, so things like that. So, you know, I try to come up with things that I've had experience of myself, but that I feel aren't unique to me, but things that everybody, even if they hadn't experienced it, certainly could appreciate it or imagine it. Thank you, Andrew. And I have one more question to our authors, our writers. What would you say to them or to say to us to encourage us? What kind of words of insight might you have for someone who is maybe their first time authors or published authors? Well, that's a that's a great question. And the short answer is, you know, just don't stop. Don't give up. Always keep going because that's really the only difference between a published author and an author who's yet to be published is the published one never gave up. You know, however, however desperate it might feel, you just got to keep going. And one thing that helped me to keep going when I was trying to write my first book was I tried to remind myself that publishing is even though you feel like you're doing it on your own because it's just you and your computer and you, you know, you're trying to, to tell the story. Publishing actually is a team name. There are lots of people involved and each person involved has a specific role. You have to remember what your role is as the author and your role is very simple. Your role is to start on page one and to finish on page whatever, you know, when you get to the end. It is not to worry about, is your book any good? It's not to worry about, is anybody going to like it? None of that, you know, you've just somehow just got to turn off that switch where you are thinking, oh no, this is terrible. No one's going to like it. Not your job to decide. Your job is to start at the beginning and not stop until you reach the end. Other people will decide whether the book is any good. You know, that's not, that's not up to you. And then the second thing, you know, it kind of sounds ridiculous, but I always say, you know, somebody says, what's your advice? My advice is always, well, ignore all advice because the only person who can write your book is you. The thing that is going to make your book different is the fact that it has your own unique voice. That is what will make it successful or not successful. Because when you get to the stage that you've got to the end and you are ready to look for an agent, the agents, you know, they don't particularly care about, is the plot exciting or any, is other, other locations exotic? What they care about is, is there an interesting and unique voice? Because if the plot has holes in, you can fix the holes. If the location is boring, you can change the location. But what you can't change is the author's voice. And I believe that the reason that sometimes the author's voice gets lost is if you end up in one of these kind of committed situations. You know, I've, I've had friends who have gone to so many different people with their manuscripts and said, what do you think? What do you think? And people will say, oh, well, I think you should change this. And I think you should change that. And, you know, what they wind up with is a sort of committee version of, of what should have been unique and thrilling. And it ends up being a, a just a sort of image other people's secondhand opinions. And I think you've just got to be bold. You've just got to believe enough and say right or wrong. You know, even if it means that it's, it'll never get published, it's going to be my book, my idea, my voice, my vision. And you just got to go for it, not allow the self-doubt to get in the way and allow other people's opinions to get in the way either. Just put down your words in your own way and just have faith that it'll work. Oh, this, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really, thank you. 
Thank you so much for being here. I, we, we are so grateful you're here with us. And before I turn it over to Kathy, I know that there's a lot of you anticipating what's the prompt for the week. Actually, you have two weeks for this prompt because Kathy and I are taking off on Friday. Please look for our new creative writing prompt journal, which you can pre-order the ebook on Amazon and the print version will be out on the 15th will be available. And on the following week, we are going to have our one-year celebration that Kathy and I have been together. So the prompt this week is, oh, my dog is out digging in the, in the dirt. What is he, what has he got? Oh my gosh. I go out there and I reach in and I pull, oh dear. Go ahead, finish it. A hundred words max. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everybody, for your wonderful questions and participation today. We really appreciate everybody being here and enjoying this wonderful event. Andrew did such a terrific job sharing his experience and insights with us. Be sure to visit writingworkswonders.com for these show notes, resources, and previous episodes You will also find many opportunities to write and participate in Writing Works Wonders events. Above all else, we want you to be encouraged, inspired, and enjoy the wonder of writing. We look forward to being with you next time. Now we get to hear the writing prompt responses. Our prompt last week was to elaborate more on our story that we did in the round robin with our fairies that were up in the rafters at the event. Marlene, go ahead. Hi, I would like to read my prompt, Mischievous Fairies by Marlene Massat. I look to the rafters and what do I see? Colorful, fanciful fairies, all fluttering free, with sparkling dust falling from feather-like wings, floating silently down on the celebrating ballroom. What omen could this bring? My instincts take over. Being an elf, I need to explore. I must find out what they have in store. What mischievous tricks can they be about? I set off eagerly, but I have my doubts. And thank you, Marlene. And Marcia Summers. I looked at my sister fairies and said, well, what can we do today to stir things up? Sister Fay Fairy said, look down there at those people who are all sitting around talking their ills, bodily pains, spouse troubles, kid troubles, work troubles. There must be something we can do to lighten the mood. Sister Giggle Fairy started what she does best, giggling. So the lot of us flew down and giggled, giggled, giggled. Pretty soon we saw a tentative smile from one of the sad people. And all of a sudden it started to spread. Pretty soon all were talking about what they wanted to do for fun that in their day. And <laughs> terrific. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you. My goodness. 
these fairies are up to a lot of trouble, Cheryl. What did we unleash? They certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> we know what kind of prompts they like. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.